Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 187 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today's guest is Katie, Elizabeth's mom. And again, I love how stories can kind of come back around because Katie was recommended to come on the show by Alexander's mom, who was a guest way back on episode number 15. So that was well over three years ago. It's just great to know that people who were on so long ago still think about the podcast and think about people who might do a great job on the podcast. So thank you to Alexander's mom. And thank you to Elizabeth's mom for coming on today and telling us all about Elizabeth. I know that you will really enjoy listening to Katie as she talks about her journey with her daughter Elizabeth through her cancer and through different healings that she has done and and continues to do now. She also talks about her book that is coming out that you will be able to get in the near future and how you would be able to do that. Right now, I do want to give you one last chance to submit any questions that you have for the Ask Me Anything episode. That's coming up next week. So if you want to get something in, do it quickly. Eric and I will be recording that soon, and we do want to make sure that all of our questions are answered. Right now, though, just sit back and enjoy listening to Katie, Elizabeth's mom. Thank you so much, Katie, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes. So why don't you start out by just telling us about your sweet daughter, Elizabeth? Okay. So my daughter, Elizabeth, born at, you know, like normal pregnancy, born healthy, no problem, baby. Yeah. We thought everything was all good. We we brought yeah. her home. Was she your first? She was my first. Yay. Yes. Yeah. So we brought her home. It was very special. The day we brought her home, there was a rainbow in the sky. Oh. You know, we didn't take that lightly. You don't see rainbows every day. And for the fact that we saw a rainbow in the sky on the day that we were bringing her home was special. Yeah, that is special. It's not like you're in Hawaii where there are rainbows all the time. You're in New Jersey, right? Great. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. So mm-hmm. it was special. And it, it was actually something that we made sure to have rainbows for our other children we brought home. But those were not natural in the sky, but we would have a <laughs> rainbow cake okay. to honor okay. the next children, you know, each of the additional <laughs> children that came along because... Now it was a thing. <laughs> so how many kids did you have? I have three children, Very three good. girls. Very good. Yes. And Elizabeth was your big one. Mm-hmm. Yes, Elizabeth. And then there's Mary and there's Anna. So. Okay. Well, tell us about Elizabeth growing up. What was she like? I'm trying to remember the that first year. Um, her first year of life, she was a normal, typical baby going through all the developmental notches Mm -hmm. on the chart. She was meeting everything, talking, crawling, starting to coast and then take a few steps. And then right around a year old, she stopped walking and she was coasting along furniture, um, Hmm. which I didn't give much thought to because I had read that a baby could stop progress in one area to focus in another. Uh So my thought when she was back to coasting and not freely walking, it was because she was honing in on her vocab. Right. At 13 and a half months old was when she took a fall. And that's when, you know, the babysitter called me at work and said, you need to come home. And 
And that's where the story begins. Oh, so do you want to go into that story now? Sure, sure. So at 13 and a half months old, my daughter took a a fall just coasting along a couch. It was, she fell on, on padded carpet. So I didn't think much when the the babysitter called and said, come home. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, let me finish what I'm doing and then I'll head home. And she called about an hour later to say, Elizabeth uh, seemed okay now. And she was going to put her for a nap. And she then you know, she was for a nap. So I was still working and she called me another two hours later or so to say that she had had thrown up in her crib. And that concerned me. And I knew she had fallen. I didn't know if she hit her head, but she had thrown up and she was not a child that had like an uneasy stomach. She really hadn't thrown up in the beginning, you know, 12, 13 months of her life. So I called the pediatrician and they said, bring her right over. I got home. Elizabeth reached for me and tried to fall right back asleep, which was also not typical. And once I saw her, I saw she didn't seem right. So now I understood the concern originally from the babysitter once I saw her. And when I got over to the, the doctor's office was it started with the nurse in the office. Then it was the doctor that we always saw, the pediatrician. And then all three additional pediatricians came in. So you knew they were concerned. (laughs) Right. And next thing happened was uh, the police officer came and he took the babysitter. Yes. The babysitter had come with me to the doctor and they took the babysitter in a separate room to question her because they thought maybe foul play had caused my daughter not to seem She was kind of a little bit dazed. She wasn't herself. She was sleepy and she had just taken a nap. And this is before they put her in a scanner to scan her head or had they done that already? We were at a pediatrician's office. There were no scanners. Okay. Yeah. I'm just surprised. I would feel like it would be way more important to me as a pediatrician myself to stabilize the child than to have the police there. But that's just seems a little backwards to me. That's why I was asking. Sorry. Yeah, but I guess uh, in in an emergent situation, yeah, you know who you know you, yeah, you, yeah. you maybe can't tell uh, how people are going to react, and and I didn't right. know what was right or wrong. I just was like, sure. oh my gosh, a police officer's here, you know what happened? And I to- I trusted my babysitter. I didn't have any questions myself about the nature, right. you know. I just took it as a fall, but I guess. The pediatricians knew, well, a a small little fall from a couch shouldn't do that. Yeah. Padded carpet shouldn't cause this the way my daughter presented. Right. And there were other details that I wasn't filled in in the moment about that, I guess, also probably caused them to call the police. Mm -hmm. So but the next question the the doctors said to me was, which hospital do you want to go to? I'm in a suburban area. There's two hospitals, pretty similar distance from the pediatrician. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, we've, we're calling for the ambulance. We're going to take you to the hospital. And I'm like, what? I'm like starting. But, you yeah. know, the fear is rising because I was like, what is this? So I, I mentioned the one hospital that I knew better. And they agreed to send us there. And I, you know, I called my husband and I said, you know, this is what's going on, you know. And he said, oh, you know, don't worry about it. And they were downplaying it, too, at the office. Um, And we got to the hospital. It had a pediatric ER. Mm -hmm. First thing they want to do is start an IV. And uh, they had a hard time starting the IV. And they unfortunately asked me to leave the room, which was the worst thing for me because it was like, I don't know what's going on with my baby. And and now I've got a lever in hands of people I've never met before. Like it just, the whole starting of this journey was awful. Right. And I was put in a separate room and they said, you know, now she has an IV and they said they were going to give her a CAT scan to see, right. you know, what's going on in her brain from the fall. The next, you know, medical professional that came to see me said, we think your daughter has a brain tumor. And I was like, what, what in the world? And they said, you know, like you need to start calling family members. And I made the first call and I was a a mess. Right. And they said, okay, 
now give us the phone numbers. We will call everyone else because people are going to, you know, be rushing so much hearing how upset you are. And, and then it could put them at risk for not driving carefully. And the next person that walked in, the woman shook my hand and she said, hello, I'm your daughter's neurosurgeon. And I was like, what? Like, what? She started explaining to me, my husband was stuck in traffic. So I was getting the consult directly because it was, there was no time to waste. She said, well, your daughter's having an emergency MRI right now. And then she's going to be taken in for emergency surgery. And we're Catholic and they called for a priest. The priest gave my daughter last rites right before she was taken into surgery. My husband at that point had gotten there to get like the remainder of the consult, but that's where the story begins. Yeah. I mean, so crazy to have it happen so, so quickly like that. I mean, just what a whirlwind that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it truly was because that morning when I left, when I was leaving for work, Elizabeth was in her high chair eating and drinking normally. Mm-hmm. There was no indicator. And, and after the fact, I had asked professionals, you know, medical professionals, why is this? Like, why didn't I see anything? And they said a young child like that basically is on like death's doorstep before they're going to show signs of what's going on. It's so different than an adult or even an older child that you would start seeing more things and having kind of some subtle headaches and having things like that. Kids just so often don't show that you know, they can't tell you. So. Right. And as I mentioned, when you said, how was the beginning part of her life before her diagnosis? Yeah. And I said, well, there was that one kind of indicator a month before that she stopped being able to walk unassisted where she at 11 months was walking unassisted. And one other thing, as we look back in the photographs, One week prior to her getting diagnosed, you can see that the circumference of her head was enlarging. But because I was seeing her every single day. Yeah, you don't notice. I didn't notice that it was her head was growing. I know. And honestly, that's a big reason why we measure kids' heads so frequently when they're young. And I have sent kids for scans that have been totally fine when if their heads grow too fast because you get worried about kids heads that grow too fast because brain tumors are not uncommon really in children right one of the facts i found out after the fact of that day in the pediatrician's office was like i knew they measured her head but they didn't comment to me and she had only been there a month before for her one year checkup and she had normal circumference then that day when she was brought in after she fell, she her her growth chart was at 150%. Yeah. So she still had the soft spot from being a young child. Her skull hadn't completely formed solid. Mm-hmm. That was actually the blessing in disguise because it, right. the soft spot allowed the head to expand. Mm-hmm to make enough room for this rapidly growing tumor. It was a very fast growing tumor. This is why in in an older child, they would have a horrible headache, but they don't get horrible headaches because the head just grows. And Mm. to keep the pressure relatively normal until it isn't, which is what happened that day, right? Right. So it keeps expanding and expanding, expanding, keeping that relative pressure in the head okay. But then there's a point that it just isn't going to expand anymore, right? It's You've stretched the skin as much as you can, you've stretched the skull as much as you can, and now this pressure starts to go up. And that's probably what happened in just that very, very last little bit of time for her. Right. Which is why then it turns into an emergency, suddenly. Right, because it, it they said that it probably started in utero, this brain tumor okay. in her head. But when they did all their testing, it was, you know, nothing, you know, you wouldn't have found it. And then by the time they did find it, it was the size of a grapefruit in a little 13 month old's head. Yeah. It had grown so large, it made one hemisphere push into the other hemisphere of the brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she had her surgery that day and she made it through her surgery, didn't she? Yes, that was a scary day for many reasons. One of the things the neurosurgeon told us was she only had a 50-50 chance of making it out alive of that surgery. Wow. 
Wow. I had a big meltdown in that moment. You know, I was convulsing, crying. They put me in a wheelchair. It was. uh, Yeah. Terrifying. That was that was tough. That was really, really one of the, you know, there were many tough moments in Elizabeth's journey with her cancer, but that was one of one of the top ones. So long surgery, I presume that first one. It was about, I'll say about four hours. Oh, okay. The other blessing again of the soft spot in her head was the tumor was bleeding out. It was hemorrhaging. Mm-hmm. So when the, the surgeon opened up to take the tumor out, there was so much blood. It was so, uh, it was not a controlled situation. Mm-hmm. It was emergent. And she got to a point where it was it wasn't as clear what was brain matter what was tumor with all the excess fluid wow. to and as another complication was elizabeth was losing a lot of blood and they had transfused her four times over again her body's worth of blood and they said the combination of things they could not continue surgery because her body wouldn't take wouldn't be able to manage through any more transfusions of blood Mm -hmm. and they had to close her up and we were hopeful that it was the whole tumor was out the surgeon said we did the best we could and we got 75 percent out okay so we got most of it out but there was still some cancer cancerous tumor in her head to get Mm -hmm. started with treatment right right and so then she started her treatment then went through that about three and a half weeks later she had to have incision healed to you know and to be discharged by the neurosurgeon before we could start her chemotherapy and it was a high dose chemotherapy a program at the time called head start three protocol and it was elizabeth had a very rare tumor the neuro pediatric neuro oncologist would see just one case a year of her type of tumor Mm -hmm. There was honestly no protocols for her tumor, but a similar tumor, a little bit more common is called a peanut. And Mm -hmm. this Head Start 3 encompassed peanut as one of the diagnoses. So her choreoplexus carcinoma diagnosis, you know, was put under that umbrella. And she did that protocol, two of the three aspects of the protocol. There was high-dose chemotherapy followed by a stem cell transplant. Mm-hmm. And then after that, if if she had been three years old, she would have had full brain, full spine radiation. But because she was only one and a half, they said it was too risky. They said, if in the future she were to need more treatments. We don't want to consider radiation of the brain and spine until she's at least three years old. And we were told that you have already 75% of your knowledge for life at three years old. So that's why there is much more confidence in allowing the radiation once you become three years old. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how did she tolerate her treatments then? She was on treatment for quite a while. I know she lived for a good amount of time after her diagnosis, didn't she? Mm -hmm. Yes, she did. Her first diagnosis and treatment was about seven months long. Mm -hmm. And then she went into remission with, that was the high-dose chemo with the stem cell transplant. Her remission lasted about eight months only. And at two years old, she was re-diagnosed. That re-diagnosis, she was on chemotherapy. Now, Now there were zero protocols even similar to put her on. And it was thankfully the COG network with our doctor and other doctors that would put their knowledge together to come up with the best next plans for her. And they had to, there were, there were bumps in the, in the journey in that second battle where they'd have to reconvene, figure out the next new cocktail of drugs to try to attack the the cancer again. Mm-hmm. This went on for about a year of different cocktails lasting different periods of time until that summer when she was now three years old and she was, had thinned out quite a bit. And she was, the doctors basically said she can't handle any more chemo at this point. The good news was 
She's over three years old now. We can try this full brain, full spine radiation. And so that summer, we we switched fa- uh, switched direction and we started prepping her for radiation. And she was going to be getting six weeks worth of radiation, five days a week, every week of full brain, full spine radiation. Mm-hmm. Once she received all of that radiation, that gave her her longest remission. She was in remission for two and a half years. Wow. A big, big wow. At the two-year mark, which was always the goal, like after two years being out with an aggressive you know, tumor, she had a stage four tumor, um, she would have clearance for growth hormone. Oh. Yes. And- the radiation of her spine, they they told they told us that it would stunt her spine forever. So her little three-year-old spine was gonna be that length the rest of her life. But the growth hormone was gonna allow her legs and her arms to grow. So she would have some additional height. And when we gave we did end up giving her growth hormone and it gave her another four and a half inches which was nice because she was really, really tiny before then. Yeah. But what ended up happening, I guess she would have stayed on growth hormone, but she would have MRIs every so often to check and see if her disease was staying under control. Mm -hmm. And about six to nine months after she started growth hormone, uh, cancer was back. And that was a warning that doctors gave us, that it could potentially if she had a cancer cell left in her body, it could grow that cancer cell just like it's growing all the normal functioning cells. Mm -hmm. So we had to stop the growth hormone and we got back to treatment. Uh, This time she was six years old. She was able to do nine months more of treatment Mm -hmm. until unfortunately an MRI showed that there was just no more options. She had tried everything, radiation, tons of chemotherapies, stem cell transplant, And the disease had progressed to just too much. And they said, there's nothing more we can do traditionally. And they gave Elizabeth, they approximated and said that they felt like she'd have two more weeks to live only. Wow. So, but thankfully that didn't come true Mm -hmm. before that two week till possible death, uh, uh, you know, that the doctors gave us. Mm -hmm. I had found a holistic technique that I had started for Elizabeth and using that technique multiple times a day, every day, it turned those two weeks that she survived, uh, that they thought she would survive into another nine months. So for me, every single extra moment of those nine months was such a gift. Yeah. I'm forever grateful. Oh, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. And you just probably had her home then with you. Yes. Yes. I I mean, there would be moments we would go to the clinic for this or that. And I am very grateful there was a nurse practitioner that was, you know, the doctor's right hand person to, you know, address the day to day issues and concerns. And midway through those nine months, there was, you know, we would get her blood counts still at the hospital and the hemoglobin was going down. Mm hmm. It was getting uncomfortably low. And the nurse practitioner said, okay, we'll get her a blood transfusion. Mm-hmm. She did get some questions for that of why. Yeah. You know, she she as a mother, I'll say, could put herself in the position of me as a mother. And if there was that small gift we could give to my daughter to also help. Well, and it gave her likely several more months. Mm-hmm. Yes, extra time. She was going to do everything possible to get that transfusion for us. Oh, and she did. That's very sweet. That's very sweet. Yeah. So do you want to talk now a little bit about what you did with Elizabeth? How you two? Sure. The treatment yeah. or, mm-hmm, that you did? I mean, I can uh, I can speak to definitely some some examples uh, for sure. When I went very soon into finding Seme is the technique that I found to help Elizabeth. Only weeks into taking her to the sessions, when you go in for a session, there's always a focus that is um, decided either by a parent of a young child or by the person getting it themselves. And this one day we saw, you know, the, the practitioners there saw that she had orthotics. 
Her very first surgery at 13 months old left her hemiplegic, paralyzed on the right side of her body. Therapy had gotten her back to walking, but it was never a fluid walk. So this day, a few weeks into going to same sessions, the practitioner said, we're going to help her to run and walk better. So I said, that would be fantastic. Let's try. And so they worked on her and then they told Elizabeth, go ahead and run around the room. And here she is six years old. She ran around that room, the most beautiful I'd ever seen her run in her life. And that was the moment I said, okay, I need to learn this. I need to learn this as soon as possible because I want to not only be taking her once or twice a week to your clinic, I want to have this so I can do it at home for her too. Mm-hmm. Thankfully I did, you know, and I, I learned as much as I could, as fast as I could, so I could be as proficient as I could for her. It really, I mean, it made so many, so many wonderful things. I mean, it extended her life. Things like a month before she passed away, she had bleeding in her ear. I called the home, the nurse that would visit us at home for Elizabeth. Home health nurse. And I asked her about it. And she said, oh, that's the pressure building in her head from the from the tumors. And it's the capillaries inside her ear that are bursting. And that's what's causing the bleeding. And the nurse said, that bleeding's not going to stop until she eventually passes away. I said, okay, thank you. Now I'm going to call one of my teachers of SAME. So I called my teacher and this work can be done both in person and over the phone. And I asked my teacher, what are we going to do now? And so the teacher started doing things from a distance and she gave me what to do in person. And within 20 to 30 minutes, that bleeding stopped in her ear. And for another whole month, she lived. Never one more drop of blood ever came into her ear. And even just that, there's so many gifts that Seme gave to me in the in Elizabeth's journey. But you know, thank goodness it was it was one of many anguishes that could have been perpetuated, but it didn't because it gave me that gift of not having to see her bleeding actively bleeding on a daily basis. No, I wouldn't have liked that. That would have been hard for sure. Mm-hmm. So would you like to talk a little bit now about your grief journey and about kind of how that went? Sure. When Elizabeth passed? Was she at home when she passed? She was. Yes. Uh, I, Oddly enough, I smiled. But I think one, one of the reasons I smile is because I, luckily thinking back, to the moment when she did pass, uh, it was just myself and one other family friend in the room. And she had, for a few weeks prior to that, been having, I'll say, stopping and starting her breath sometimes. Like she'd have pauses in her breath. Yeah. And in that moment where she did leave this world permanently, she paused her breath. And that's that's all it was. It was just another pause in her breath. And my friend said to me, well, does her pauses usually last this long? And I said, no, not usually this long, but I was so calm. I was so calm. I wasn't alarmed. And, you know, I called, you know, the people I needed to call, you know, to ver like, make sure what I'm seeing is true. Yes. She's passed. And one of the individuals said, you know, you could do CPR for her and revive her. And I said, I'm going to honor the moment she chose to leave. Yeah. Because at that point, if I had given her CPR, she didn't, she was slowly leaving. Like it was going to just be a benefit to myself. And to me, that wasn't fair to do. And let me tell you, witnessing CPR being done on your child is not something you like. It's not an image you want to have in your head forever. So I'm glad you didn't. Thank you. I'm really glad you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry you had to see that. (laughs) I'm so sorry. So she had that moment, the moment with you. Yeah. Yeah. It was like it was a peaceful moment for sure. It was a peaceful moment. It really, it was peaceful. I, and 
two months before she left, she had a day where she told me at that time, it was again, just myself and another family friend, a different family friend and Elizabeth, just the three of us in the room. And this time she, you know, two months earlier, she had said, mommy, I want to go see Rudy in heaven. And she had told me this in times past. And my answer to her always was not before you're 104. <laughs> but this time, you know, I think I was being, you know, like this time she truly was getting closer to when she was yeah. most likely going to leave, even though I was never going to admit that to, right? you know, like I was not going to admit that no matter how closer she was getting there. But I guess there was part of myself that knew I had always heard, like, you need to give, give that permission. person permission to leave. Yeah. Yep. So right in the moment when she was saying it, it was my friend that actually said, oh, you could see Rudy in your dreams anytime you want. It was the our family dog. And Elizabeth just would politely repeat, I want to see Rudy in heaven. And then later that night when it was just her and I is when I decided I'm going to give her permission. And I told her, mommy's mommy's willing to do same for the forever for you, but yeah. it is your body and it is your choice. Mm -hmm. And after that night, you know, the next three days, she stopped eating and drinking altogether. So we really thought in that week she was going to be gone. And yeah. we had all these people flooding in. I was again, very upset. Um, but then by the fourth day after early that morning, I woke up and it was this beautiful sunrise. And I said to myself, I'm going to do Sammy for her while she's still sleeping. Yeah. And so I, I proceeded for an hour to do Sammy on her. And after that hour, I, I had like this inner knowing that no matter whether Elizabeth lived or she died, both her and I were going to be okay. And my devastation from the three prior days of the, oh my gosh, what did I actually give her permission to do? Because now she's acting on it. Yeah. Then by day four, I had an inner peace that I, I it's hard to even describe the inner peace I had about just yeah. trusting, you know, somehow it was going to be okay. I mean, I don't know any bereaved parent, if any of us could say it's okay, but right. somehow just trusting and believing that it was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. She didn't end up passing away. It was uh, uh, one of her family, one of the family members, you know, innocently said, Hey, would you like some water? And she said, yes. And by the next day she started eating again and drinking again. And so she did rally again, you know, those, the two months before she went back to eating and drinking, but for three days, uh, a little child, you know, not eating and drinking. It did look yeah. like it was going to be soon. Wow. I just love, though, that you were able to get such a little gift of that piece. And that probably helped you in the end when it did come, when you were able to be so calm, right? From yes. From that experience just two months before. Mm -hmm. I, yes, I, I think so. I, I do believe that that was... That was helpful because I had this wisdom within me right. that right. some like, again, the totally the thing that no parent ever, ever wants to even consider that a child could die before the parent dies. Like you don't yeah. want that's not even a consideration in any parent's head. But yeah. now I'm, I'm kind of faced with that. Like since diagnosis date, I was to some degree faced with the potential that she could die. And now fast forward to shortly before she died, it was getting a bigger and bigger possibility that she wasn't going to make it. I, right. But even days before she died, she was very, she was much closer to leaving this world bodily wise and everything. But at the time, my husband and I said, if she makes the choice today to still stay, you know, she makes yeah. that choice and she doesn't end up leaving. We'll put her in that wheelchair and we'll we'll do whatever we need to. We'll put the accommodations in the house. Like we were on board if that was her choice. Mm -hmm. It was not. And it, and 
was it going to be a fair life for her if she did choose that, you know? Right. Right. So you have done some things in since in your grief journey, because I know you've been working on a book, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that and kind of maybe even how that started? Because that's not something that, you know, that Elizabeth dies and the next week you're thinking about writing a book. Things end up being kind of a long process, I know. Writing a book was not any kind of goal I ever had in life. (laughs) If you would have told myself as a younger self, you're writing a book (laughs) when you get older. No, not me. (laughs) You must be talking about somebody else. But, uh, you know, I I just, I I feel like the right situations occur, the right people say the right things. I would say it's five to six years ago, as more and more people would hear individually me speaking about Elizabeth and the journey with Elizabeth, they would say to me, you need to write a book. And I I very much deflected those first people (laughs) that would tell Mm -hmm. me that. But eventually, with this technique I learned with Elizabeth, for Elizabeth, I have started working with lots of different people to help others with same mm-hmm. Being that I was working with more and more people, I was starting to network mm-hmm. for my business. And one of the networking channels that I was in about two years ago or so, I met a woman that was a book coach. Really? Yes. And... Oh. I had, it was speed networking. I think I had three minutes with her. And in those three minutes, I found out she was a bereaved mother. And I thought, oh, okay. I am seeing connection here. Because honestly, I felt like only another bereaved parent would know the type of anguish that I'd be writing in a book. Yeah. So I think this is my person. This is, this is a sign. And then I had like an introduction meeting with her. And at first I thought, oh, I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe not. But then I got more signs to like kind of solidify it. And I realized her name is a shortened name of Elizabeth. So she had the same name as my daughter. She was a bereaved mother. And then as I got started working after those two signs, but then like within working with her once or twice with uh, starting and she was helping me to bring the story out of me, she understood all about the brain and brain surgeries and what it could do because her grandson had had not a brain tumor, but had a medical situation where he had had a craniotomy and She had some of the dimensions of things that happen in this world of uh, childhood cancer and specifically brain tumors, because the brain tumors, there's a lot of additional side effects that some other cancers don't, it doesn't go hand in hand with some of the other cancers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I took it as a sign and I, I started A year ago, full, so about a year and a half ago, I started with this woman. And within five months, she was able to help get the story from me. Uh And she said, I can't believe it. She said, this is the quickest I've gotten a story from someone. And she said, by far, it's also the most difficult story I've gotten. She was like stunned. But it's interesting how life works, because then when I got my first edit of the book back, I think it was like a, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And I took, I did very, very small bits of editing, mm-hmm. like, or, or re-editing after the editor. And it took me another nine months before I decided, okay, you know, I got through and then I've done some additional editing and I'm two months from publishing now. So it's, it just, there was, you know, a little bit more time that I needed before I could, and still I have the jitters thinking about it. And speaking of things kind of falling into place, you just days ago had the 10 year anniversary of Elizabeth's death. And the book is being released on her 18th birthday. Yes. So, I mean, those are beautiful things too, right? To have that just fall into place like that. It just feels so meant to be. 
Right. And it, and then I, it, it allows like, I don't know if it's moms in general, but certainly me as a mom, like you put so much guilt on yourself. And I know I gave myself a lot of grief about me taking so long with that edit. But now that we're in this year, and as you said, her 10 years since her death and her 18th birthday, this would be her senior year of high school. It would be a big year for her. I'd be celebrating so much for her graduating, going off to college. And it feels like, wow, as a bereaved mother, what a gift that this did get delayed a year so that now I can celebrate her in a really big way in her senior year of high school, what it would have been by presenting this book to the world and, and sharing her in a bigger, huger way with yeah. that book. Yeah, I just love that. So you talked about how you you know, spoke to people over time and who kind of led you to start the book and, you know, gave you the idea that maybe I could do a book. It was the professionals. It was professionals. Mm -hmm. Because I was networking a lot with being a holistic practitioner. Mm -hmm. In those one-to-one -one meetings, both in person and virtually, because it's into the COVID time where we're doing a lot of virtual networking, and the gift is when I talk about my same, I'm it always yeah. is hand in hand with my daughter. So I get this beautiful chance to talk about Elizabeth so often oh. as I introduce what I do now as a holistic practitioner is because my my daughter was unfortunately sick and she was sick in a, a you know, going through a third battle with cancer, it was, you know, less and less possibility that she was going to survive. And I think it helped me to be more open to things that maybe I wouldn't have even considered at the beginning because I was very traditionally minded and, and I always stayed with traditional medicine through her whole journey. But on that third battle, seeing that this cancer came back two times, I just felt like, what else can there be? What, what, there must be something else that we can complement traditional medicine with. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was uh, someone that I had known almost since the beginning of Elizabeth's battle with cancer for those five years. That was uh, a person that was doing things for her son holistically. And I just asked that simple question of what are you doing now? And she said, oh, I do this thing called Same They have an open night for the public tonight. Why don't you go over there? Okay. That was right. as easy as it was. And I went there that night and I never stopped. Wow. Yeah, it's funny. That story that you said earlier reminded me a little bit of my own grandmother because my grandmother went through, she had a lot of cancer. She had like three different primary tumors and at one point in time. But but anyway, she went into the Mayo Clinic towards the end. Well, it ended up not being that. She went in and they said, Mrs. Peterson, there's really not a lot more we can do. We're sorry. We think you've probably got about six months to live. And she turned around and walked out. And then she got halfway down the hallway, stopped, just turned around. And my not even five foot tall grandmother goes marching back into the room where now the doctor is with a different patient. And she said, no one is going to tell me when I'm going to die. I will die when I'm good and ready. And she wow. lived six years. Good for you her. Know? So it, it, I mean, we obviously, I'm in traditional medicine, but there are, I mean, there are limits, right? There are limits and there are, are other things that we can certainly try and do and complement. And, you know, obviously she was at the Mayo Clinic. She was getting all the best she could get. But it, yes. but sometimes you just need that stubbornness too. <laughs> yes. And, and what a beautiful teaching opportunity it was from your grandmother to that doctor. Right. Right. And to watch her live six more years. Yes. Yes. 
and I don't Good know what her. all treatment she had. I don't, I don't know because I was young at the time. I, I was 15 when she died. So I, you know, I was just nine years old when that whole conversation happened. And we obviously knew she was dying. She had to be tube fed because she had cancer all the way down her entire esophagus. So she mm. couldn't ever swallow food. She would chew it sometimes and spit it out just to sit at a meal with us. But she always had to be tube fed because there's just cancer everywhere. And yet she just kept going on living with just cancer wow. everywhere. It's wow. It's crazy what the mind sometimes is able to do, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And determination. Yeah. Because I feel you like, know? too, your daughter just wasn't ready at that point in time. And then at some point she was. And I, and I believe, too, it's in a case like this where it's a loss, but it was a long period of time we had knowing there was that potential loss eminent at the end yeah. that she may not live. Um, she, I think she, not only it was when she was ready, but also when, uh, her dad and I were ready. Right. And, right. and I've, I've heard it said, and I, and I saw it even with my daughter, almost like there were certain people she wanted to see before she left. Uh-huh. Yeah. And again, I can go back to my grandmother. Very interesting. So she's dying in the hospital. And my aunt, Penny, who I talk about him all the time on the show, my aunt Penny mm. flew back to see her. And I hope I'm getting this story right because Aunt Penny is listening. But she came in and she flew in and she went in to see her. And she sat there for just a very short period of time. And then she said, Mom, I've, I've just got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. And she left and she came back. And grandma had died. So mm. she waited until she got there. Yes. And then she waited until she left. Wow. So that she didn't have to see her die. But yet mm. she had seen her. So it was yes. it was so much of her death was just on her terms. It Yes. It, it was it, it was a beautiful thing in that. Yeah. Especially because not too many years later, my, my mom ended up following in her footsteps and dying of breast cancer herself. And oh, I'm sorry. It was, it was sort of, I mean, she was quite an example to have as a mother-in-law to watch your yes. mother-in-law do that. And then you do the same thing. And my mom ended up having many of the same doctors, many of the same nurses. They knew the Peterson family well. Mm. But anyway, there's a, there a lot, lot to, to that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I like to, it's definitely a story of resilience to see grandma. Yeah. You know, beating the odds for so long, way, way past what doctors said. Good for her. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, that's, and then I'm thinking back to your Elizabeth. She long beat the odds too, didn't she? She definitely did. Oh my gosh, did she? We were not ones to consider we never wanted to know statistics with her cancer it was a stage four brain tumor um yeah. so statistics were low probably 20 percent at the first when it first came you know it was probably you know in the teens to 20. And, and statistics are hard anyway though because for you it's one or a hundred i mean you for the individual the percent doesn't matter so it's yeah. A lot of people do want to know all these percentage points, but then I don't love that because they, I don't know. They don't end up meaning a lot because even if you have a number like 15%, then you think in your head, well, my kid's strong. My kid's in the 15% anyway. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't, they don't ma- mean a lot. Right. And it's, thing. it's funny you say about the percentages. One of the things that the hospital we ended up going with and the pediatric neuro-oncologist we went with, he did say one thing that just like it was the thing that any parent wanted to hear. It was perfect for us because he he said, I don't care what the statistics are. There's only one Elizabeth and we're aiming for 100%. Right. Like, <laughs> yes, why why would anybody be aiming any lower than 100% of survival you know when you're working with a, a a child with a critical illness like of course you want 100% of your patients to to win mm-hmm. to survive mm-hmm. and um that that was just such a gift and and that doctor respected 
that we didn't want to know the statistics. Mm-hmm. But we knew there wasn't, you know, based you know, on statistics, good, right? it was low and it got lower and lower for the chance of survival. So it really, you know, the more and more it came back, the more and more it was every day is such a gift. And our daughter taught us, you know, we really lived in the present moment because you didn't know if you were going to get the next moment. Yeah, I love that. I love that being able to live like that. It is a gift to live like that. Yes. Yes, it is. And we knew it best during that journey. So she, and she, you know, she's definitely my hero. Um, She taught me volumes in her short life. She inspired thousands of people and I can't wait for her to inspire way bigger numbers once my book is out and many, many more people read it and get to, you know, meet my daughter and enjoy her. She's just, she's just a whole barrel of love. She just unlimited love. She just, she would light up a room anytime she'd walk into a room. She'd like just run across the room and jump into your arms with hugs. She was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So tell people how they can get the book. The best way is through my social media, my website. And uh, I do plan to make a website specific to the book as well. That's still a work in progress. Uh, We're a few months out from publish. Mm -hmm. But the book is going to be called Never Give Up Hope. And it's going to be all about my daughter's journey. Yeah. So www.same, S like Sam, E-I, M like Mary, E-I, healing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much again <laughs> for sharing Elizabeth with us. I really enjoyed hearing about her and learning about Sammy. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.